This episode of Mindwave is brought to you by the Mindwave Universe. Special thanks to Mindwave All-Star Phil Ord and friends of the show, Rob Wilson, David Russell, Travis Meyer, Julia May, Corey Wilcox, and Heather Cook. Thank you guys so much for making this possible. And to everyone who listens and shares, this is for you too. Thank you. Today's episode is a special one. It is a two-parter. And unfortunately, we ran into some audio issues in the first half. I apologize for that. Uh, Second half is great, though. Audio quality-wise. I mean, the whole conversation is great. But uh, yeah, just a little heads up there. I guess let's get into it. Welcome back to Mindwave. This is Jenner. I'm Josh. And we have an awesome episode today. We are very fortunate to have with us the Scott Santons, Mr. UBI guy himself. So Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It is it is a privilege, sir. <laughs> So, we are talking UBI today. We're going to get into it. Um, I kind of wanted to start off to just take the little a little bit here to get your origin story, because you're a bit of a superhero, and those are always fun to tell. So, I guess, uh, for listeners who might not be familiar with your work, who are you, uh, and what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess I, I'm a full-time uh, writer and basic income advocate. Uh, and I'm able to do this because I crowdfunded my own basic income. Uh, starting in 2016, uh, January, I've been receiving a basic income of $1,000 per month, um, every month, uh, through Patreon. So that's, uh, um, really helped me to, you know, power and enable what I do. And also has been very informative as to learning more about basic income as someone who's been living with one for years now. And um, I guess I got into this back in 2013. And uh, that was uh, through Reddit and through the technology discussion. So it was just, I was just another person you know, out there and I just, I kind of fell into this rabbit hole. And um, you know what they say, it's like, uh, all it really takes is if you get into something deep enough and if you care enough about it, then you can actually be one of the, um, you know, people who's considered kind of authority on that subject. Yeah, you, you've become quite the rock star, which is why I was like, and I could see your trajectory, and I was like, oh, man, see, we just need to get him before he becomes too big, and we can't, so. <laughs> <laughs> that was the sense of urgency there. <laughs> um, I had a question as well with you um, getting into UBI, like, what, what was it that initially like kind of sparked your interest? Like what was it that really um, kind of 
brought you to the idea of UBI? Like what, what did you see around you that was really, you know, kind of changing in the world that you really wanted to be like, you know, how, how could this affect our economy? How could this affect our people and, you know, make things better for everyone? Yeah. So, um, like years before I even started looking into this, um, I was someone who was interested in like the Venus project and, you know, the zeitgeist movement and you know, this idea of a resource-based economy, like uh, thinking towards like a post-monetary system kind of thing, and and uh, just living like kind of more like a in like a Star Trek kind of world where like a utopia where we can you know accomplish so much more and things can be so much better and you know unleashing the human potential and this kind of thing, and um, it just never it, like I was interested in that, but there was no seeming like uh, you know, realistic way of getting there. And it was just something that was interesting. And then in 2013, uh, this uh, discussion hit Reddit, and this was before the Oxford report came out. So really no one was talking about how quickly technology was advancing. And this thread on Reddit was really about that. It was just kind of like a shock to the entire Reddit community. Of, Holy crap, technology is moving really fast. And here are all these examples. And what are we going to do about it? And uh, multiple people on that thread recommended this book uh, by Marshall Brain called Mana. It's a short science fiction novella that kind of uh, just kind of theorizes and kind of plays with this where we're going if we kind of continue with our existing systems as they are and where we could go if we made changes and kind of made technology work for all of us instead of uh, the way it's working right now where it's leaving most people worse off and some people a lot better off. And I was reading that, that kind of made that connection as to how to get to this better world that I had always thought would be a nice direction for humanity to head in instead of where we're going. So that was, is what got me getting into basic income. And so I went into the evidence. I I read a bunch of the um, reports from like the the research we did in the seventies and just the research into unconditional cash transfers as a whole that's been growing really a lot of this century. And also the, uh, the UBI pilots that have taken place like in India and in India. Um, and I just kind of just really absorbed all of it because uh, I just really appreciate and think from a scientific perspective. So that kind of laid the groundwork of that. This idea isn't just like an interesting idea. It's an idea that really has a solid base of evidence and um, so from there, I kind of explored more of like the, uh, the kind of philosophical kind of groundings, um, the reasonings for it. And so looking at like the justifications from, a, from that kind of perspective, like a kind of Thomas Paine's arguments about, um, you know, just going back to like the birth of property and how man doesn't own the earth. So they can't own everything, that there's some kind of natural inheritance that belongs to everybody that is currently being withheld. Um, the, say the philosophical, like the idea that, that we should have the right to say no uh, to like the labor market. So from like kind of the libertarian perspective that, that if you want a free market for labor, then everybody needs to be voluntarily engaged in it instead of being coerced into it through the withholding of, of basic resources like food and shelter. So um, like that's kind of like my journey. 
And also part of this journey too was learning about the details of how the existing safety nets work like all over the world, being conditional, being means tested, um, you know, having your work requirements, uh, trying to figure out uh, who is deserving and who is undeserving, the effects of this, how many people are left out, the harms that cause. And just looking at all of that, uh, just like one step after another, uh, I just reached the conclusion of this being something that is not just about trying to get to this better future, uh, but it's also about just an immediacy of having to, to really make things better for people immediately that people are hurting and that there's a lot of reasons for this. And uh, once I reached the conclusion that this is like an extremely important concept that they're really as long as we're not doing it, then we're just causing all of these harms and we're limiting ourselves. That, um, that there's so many, say, kind of locked doors out there that we are unable to unlock as long as we don't have a base income. That uh, that's what really kind of cemented my my journey. And I decided to really start doing this full time. And I was like, well, I can't imagine spending any of my time doing anything else, I've got to figure out a way to, to do this um, every day uh, with you know all the time that I have each day. And that's what led me to uh, beginning my crowdfunding and uh, that process to call up 2015. And yeah, since 2015, I've been able to just really focus on this completely and just trying to expand the conversation, inform it, uh, spread the idea and really kind of um, educate people and uh, help do what I can to, to make sure this happens. Yeah, that's... I really like that. That's awesome, man. And we... This this is a common theme throughout uh, UBI Advocates is that we, we saw things like Star Trek and saw this vision of the future that felt like a pipe dream, that it didn't feel like there was a real path to get there because the system that we're in now is so backwards and broken. Mm-hmm. And and finding this this real path of UBI something that can actually work and has been uh, it's feasible it's it's been tested the the results that we would expect uh, have been shown uh, statistically so that that's uh, I love the connection to Star Trek so <laughs> uh, for sure um, see I'm a I'm a bit of a history buff so like you know I look back at you know you know, trends from like the 1950s and 1960s, you know, corporate taxes were low or I'm sorry, corporate taxes were high and, um, you know, individual, uh, taxes were lower and the economy was booming. People were going to college. People were, you know, getting educations and getting good jobs and stuff. And then like, it seemed like right around the late sixties, early seventies, uh, the beginning of the Nixon presidency, like everything just kind of shifted and we've been going down a really weird path ever since of, you know, Corporate taxes getting lower, profits increasing, everybody's just gradually struggling more and more and more over the last like 40, 45 years. And, you know, like I, I'm turning 24 in December and like I kind of came into adulthood like, you know, a couple of years after the market crash of 08. And like mm-hmm. my parents lost their house because of that. And it was like this whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. with this debt bubble that blew up and it's all happening all over again. But like, the way I see it is like, you know, technology has advanced super fast over the last 50 years. And we went from, you know, using cathode tubes for, you know, 70, 80 years to now we have 
you know, 8K TVs that are, you know, about a centimeter thick, 70 inches across. And it's like just amazing how fast technology has developed, even just in the last 10 years. But I feel like we've kind of been sleeping on the fact that the economy needs to change with that as well. And like with Andrew Yang's campaign, like he's the only guy that's like willing to play catch up and get us on par um, socioeconomically with the actual economy and how it's changed in the last 40, 50 years. So yeah. it's, it's a really interesting take, like to actually see those changes taking place. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting and important to look at this from a historical angle and take this, this wide view of, uh, you know, basically since the, yeah, the 1950s, 1960s. And, uh, because, you know, we, we just tend to, to blame whoever's in office and we just blame the other party and it's just always back and forth. It's like, oh, it's your fault. Like, no, it's your fault. No, I did this, and now I'm great. And you know, it's like it's it's just not true. I mean, we've got this ginormous system, and it's kind of like a giant, say, you know, cruise ship, like Titanic or something. And uh, if we want to avoid icebergs or want to steer this thing, all these changes can take a really long time, both to you know uh, make good changes or or for bad changes to be detected but like looking back at like, the 50s or 60s it's really we we were able using the economy as it was set up um, one person could be the breadwinner for the household so you didn't need a two-person household to be in the middle class right, you could right. be in the middle class just one person and that person didn't need to have like a college degree they didn't need to be like a doctor or something like that. They could just um, you know, have a high school degree and have a good job in like a manufacturing plant or something like that. And they could work there for decades and live a very economically secure life and, and have time uh, on the weekends and, and money to like go on vacations and these kinds of things. So looking at like that should be the starting point. And, and we have, become so much more productive since then. Our, our economy, our productivity has more than doubled since then. We are much more productive, in which case that means we could do more with less. So if you take that as a starting point, then we should all be able to do exactly as we were doing then, on say, with 20 hours. Or we could be uh, twice as well off putting in exactly the amount of time. And then if we have like a two-person household, then, you know, we can be four times as well off where each person could be working 10 hours and we could be just as well off as we were then. That's the way technology should work if it's working in a way that benefits everyone. But instead, we didn't do that. See, and it's it, it breaks down to the fact that like we've just gotten so accustomed that like, you know, a 40-hour work week is normal. And now it's become a thing of like, you know, people are working 50 and 60 hours that, you know, still are having trouble making ends meet. Yeah. Um, and it like, doesn't make any sense. I look at. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying it. Yeah. It, it, we are we are accepting that. It's like a, it's a slow process. So each time, like year after year goes by and let's say our wages don't go up and maybe we're thinking, oh, you know, it'll go up soon and that'll be that. And, but instead, we have to work harder. And then someone else has to, you know, has to have two in her household and each one has their hours have to go up. And it just doesn't make any sense that in, a, in a, an economy that's becoming more and more productive, that our country is becoming more and more wealthy as a country, that anyone is having to work harder. It, it 
just doesn't make any sense. And it's crazy to me too when people say, like, let's say that um, you know you're not able to get by right now, and oh, well, you should go back to school. Like, oh, you should go and retrain. And oh, well, you're just not working hard enough. You should work harder. And so I just want to emphasize the point where that shouldn't be true. Like, if we're leveraging our productivity increases then it should be easier for people to get by now. And it isn't, and that's, that's the problem, and people need to really demand that things should be easier, that there should be this sharing of productivity when there isn't. I agree. I agree. Yeah, this, and this is, this is the thing um, that goes back to Rio over at Moving Forward brought this up. It's, it's the shirking of personal responsibility. We all kind of want somebody up at the top, you know, top-down decision to just, like, do it for us and it's this we don't feel like we have the responsibility as as you know citizens to to even think about trying to guide our society in this way we have this kind of backwards idea which is actually pretty anti-democratic where we just almost want some authoritarian authoritarian dictator at the top to just solve all our problems and uh, i think that that's been a big part of of this whole stagnation and, you know, contribution to corruption. We just like, oh, that's just the way it is. The system's just fucked up and, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. And it's actually the opposite. It's like we are the ones who have the power to actually to do something about it. And it's having conversations like these and getting this message out there that's going to uh, help move the ball along there. Yeah, and it's also important to recognize that there are these positive feedback loops and that are happening too. So I know that that uh, it's absolutely true that that we have essentially been neglecting our duties as citizens to really control the way that the government is going. Like it's 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 up to us. We have to get out and vote, and we have to get out and we have to be informed as voters, and we should seek to have systems that are more democratic you know like it, i think as one thing that's really annoyed me is that over and over and over and over again ever since uh, uh gore lost in in 2000 it's like every election both presidential and midterm people are complaining about the spoiler effect and like voting for third parties and how that can help um, when one of the other two parties win or lose it's like well if that's the problem well, we should change that we should have ranked choice voting we should modify and reform our system so that that isn't a problem but we don't do that and it, you know, it's beneficial to the two-party system that there isn't ranked choice voting that we don't strengthen the other third parties and at the same time it is a, it, it's not just about like blaming ourselves because it does become more difficult to become and be engaged when you're in this stagnant uh, wages kind of setup where costs are going up, costs of living are going up, and your wages aren't that you're becoming more insecure, you're more worried about your job, means you're less likely to say come into work late to go to you know and vote, you know, because you don't want to possibly lose your job because of it. And let's say you're just too busy or you're too involved in in your concerns and just trying to pay the bills that you're not really thinking uh, about what the issues are. You're not really informed in politics and it's like oh, i'm just too tired you come home and just kind of relax instead of really kind of being more of an engaged citizen so these things they reinforce each other and so here we are now where we're ultimately super economically 
year and inequality has gotten even worse uh, just we're back to like almost great uh, depression you know giant stock market falls again territory uh, that could be happening soon if we're not careful and uh, yeah also when it comes to high inequality that's another feedback loop too where as a, as a society becomes more and more unequal then you actually believe more in this false notion of a meritocracy so you're more likely to like blame people for being where they are and to accept that if you're doing well it's because you're of your own doing and so like that makes things harder uh, you're less likely to say vote to um, uh, to vote for policies that reduce inequality if you feel that that you deserve what you are getting and they deserve not having anything and so yeah when when yang talks about taking the boot off people's throats and you know people will say oh he, he's just everything is related to basic income with him he's just always going back to basic income and it's like well yeah <laughs> that's, that's exactly true so many things are related to the fact that we are not economically secure that as long as we are worried about our basic survival and that we are concerned um, about you know what happens in our families each month and we're not thinking about these much bigger picture things we're not thinking about the changes that we make to our to our democracy with electoral reforms we're not focused on climate change like we should be we're just thinking oh uh, a carbon tax just sounds like it'll be more expensive for me let's not do that even though that it's really important you know to, to make these changes so yeah that's a not having a basic income is a giant stumbling block to so many of the changes that we need to make on a systemic level yeah, and it is it is very core. It is the mindset of scarcity that has led to this general apathy and and nihilism, you know. And that that's that's a knock on effect of just just being, just wondering, you know, how you're going to pay the bills. I mean that that's so fundamental, and it's such an easy problem to solve. Uh, and it solves a million other things at the same time. It increases engagement. You, when, you know, as Andrew says, if the economic boot is off your throat, you're going to give a, you're going to be able to give a shit about polar bears and penguins. You know what I mean? You're going to have that, uh, that emotional and intellectual bandwidth to, to, you know, that freedom to just fuck. Okay, let's let's actually start working on some stuff now. That I, now that I don't have to worry about the basic, basic bare bones shit. So I I mean I this is what I love um about Andrew's campaign is that so much of this is just rooted in the mindset of scarcity uh and it's it's causing it's just enormous problems just across all of society not just you know purely economic it's leading to anxiety to depression to you know uh, drug use, overdose, you know, self-destructive behavior, um, and and on and on. Before we get too much farther, I forgot I was going to do this at the top. We have a mind breaker question from you, <laughs> or for you, okay. uh, that we solicited from from Twitter. This is from uh, at Wick Blue Hat Crystal Ball Pretty Flower. <laughs> That's uh, that is at, probably the best username I've ever <laughs> fucking heard in my life. I at Universal seventy two lies uh, wants to know if you have any opinion on the decriminalization of sex work. Oh yeah, yeah. So this is another one of those issues 
that I think is really, um, you know, it's divisive even when the even when the, the even within the sex worker community, uh, because let's say you'll be talking about how, yeah, it's a it's a good thing that that you know we should make this legal, and then you'll have people say arguing, well, no, then it's a bad thing because then you know we've got sex trafficking and, and all these people who are in this that you know are being taken advantage of and that this kinds of discussion it needs like kind of like a, a severing with um you know like a Gordian knot with a Alexander sword kind of thing is the way I look at that basically income cutting through some of the issues like this. And so here's how it helps. First of all, I personally think that yeah, sex work should absolutely be legalized and you know protected and you know regulated just like we do with many other um, employment forms of employment. But the problem is the same problem that goes through all of society that exists today is that we exist in a system that depends on economic coercion. So people are in all sorts of jobs right now that they wouldn't be doing if they had the power to say no to them. Like you, in order to, for consent to fully exist, then you have to be able to decline um, whatever is being you know, offered or whatever action is there. So when you're talking about sex work, um, every single sex worker should be able to decline sex work. And that's possible through basic income. And then you know that those sex workers who are still engaged in sex work are actually doing that voluntarily because they can say no and they are still choosing to do that. So we know that they are not being coerced into it. But until we have that basic income, you can't tell that. So that kind of rings true in almost every market, though, because yeah. it's like, you know, if you think about it, like nobody wants to work at McDonald's. Like, I'm sorry, I spent so much time there and I'm like, nobody that I met across the three stores that I worked at wanted to be there. They were there because... It was the only place that would hire them. It was the only place that would take them without a background check. It was very like low skill requirement. You could get it without a high school diploma. And, you know, people that weren't, you know, well off in life, you know, like they go to those jobs because they need the money. They're not there because they want to be there. They're there because they have to be there. And I mean, you know, this notion that it's like, oh, it's just a high school job for teenagers, you know, to save up money for a car is bullshit because 90% of my coworkers were grown adults who had houses and kids and, you know, stuff to take care of. And it wasn't just a, you know, a side job for them to earn a little bit of extra cash on the side. It was like, this is my survival. Like, this is literally how I'm getting by right now. And it's my only option. Yeah. Yeah. And, I and think this, this goes. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was I was gonna say this 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 leads to situations that are just ripe for exploitation, and and this is where it, when I first read this question, I was I was just like, wow, that's that's way out of left field, and then I thought about it for a minute, and I'm like, well, conversations around or specifically around the legalization of sex work, the the main concern is around exploitation. The power to say no is absolutely huge. If you couple that with the UBI that is a system that can absolutely work. Yeah, yeah. And also, so I want to add an, an asterisk uh, because I think that asterisk is important when we talk about, say, not wanting to work at McDonald's. I think it's you don't want to work at McDonald's at that rate, you know, under those conditions uh, because that's where things get really interesting 
when you talk about basic income and uh, the power to say no and also the freedom to say yes. So when it comes to something like McDonald's or something like you know working at Walmart or whatever kind of shit job that you can think of that we would consider to be a shit job, um, they will have to pay more most likely or they'll have to kind of change the working conditions. So let's say a job that, that we don't want to take right now because it's paying too much and it's for like 40 hours or whatever. Um, maybe we'll be interested in taking up that job if they raise the rate to say $20 an hour or you know $30 an hour or whatever. Like whatever job you can think of, there's absolutely a rate that you can reach that people will do that job and they'll say, oh yeah, sure, I'll do it for that much. Sure. Um, and see, it goes back to, it goes back to like exploitation in that sense, like Jenner was saying of like, you know, because they know that people don't have a choice. They know like, oh, well, if you're working at this McDonald's or you're working at this Walmart because you don't really have another choice, that gives them the opportunity to say, okay, well, we're not going to give you full-time hours because if we give you full-time, mm -hmm. we have to give you health benefits now. Or yeah. we're not going to give you the option for um, health benefits or a 401k, or we're not going to give you a pay raise because, you know, profits are down or whatever. And it's just kind of been this gradual increase in exploitation in these jobs. And, you know, they're like, you know, the argument is like, oh, well, wages for these jobs have gone up over the years, but, you know, the cost of living has far surpassed that. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about like, you know, like starting with the Nixon administration is like, you know, one of my mom's first jobs was actually at McDonald's, kind of like me. And when she was working there in the late 70s, early 80s, you know, she was only getting a couple bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. But back then, that was actually enough to, you know, for her to pay for an apartment and pay for gas and go to school and, you know, do all the stuff that she needed to do at the time. But, you know, working the same amount of hours for me in, you know, 2015, 2016, it wasn't enough to get by. Like, you know, I had to have roommates in order to live on my own. Like, otherwise I was going to have to stay with friends or, you know, stay with family. I wouldn't be able to have my own place unless I had one or two roommates because I just wasn't making enough to pay for a house. And I think that's ridiculous. Anybody working full full time should be able to afford to survive on their own independently of anybody else. Like I just, it blew my mind, like how much things have changed. Yeah, um, like anybody, and I just make that distinction too, like anybody and everybody should be able to cover their basic needs. It's just that when you have a job, you should actually be able to buy so much more stuff. You should be more and more comfortable as you, you know, earn more income. That's just, I want to make the distinction because you know that you'll, you'll hear that a lot from say your Bernie Sanders and you know, Elizabeth Warrens and, and wherever else, they'll say that no one working full time should live in poverty. And it's like, well, no, no one should live in poverty. Absolutely no one. Period. Period. Yeah. And then, of course, if you're working, then you should be much further above that poverty line. You should be, you know, living a more enjoyable life, doing all kinds of things because you're, you're working at that job. But yeah, so I, I just yeah. I just want to mention too, uh, as the, the the flip side of this, I think is important as well. So to go back to the the power to say no and the freedom to say yes. So, so when I say freedom to say yes, that means that on the flip side you need less in order to, you know, meet whatever your wants and needs are, in which case that if you are looking for a job and let's say there's a really popular job, let's say as an, as your, let's say pretend you're an employer and you're offering a job and it's like, it's really fun or really meaningful. And a lot of people want that because it's so meaningful. 
then you can actually afford to pay less to to fill that position. And people will happily do that because they have their basic income already and they just really want to do that job. So suddenly it, you'll find that re, you'll find this rebalancing in the labor market as far as like ship jobs probably having to pay more and like really meaningful, nice jobs that people really want being able to pay less and more people being able to be in those jobs that we actually like because they're able to um, you know, pay less for people to do them. And also even the same is true with volunteering opportunities. Like if you have a basic income, then there's so many more volunteering opportunities that are opened up to you because really when it comes to volunteering, it's like you have to be able to afford to work for free. And if you're, you know, if you have more money, if you're someone who's wealthier, then um, you know they basically disproportionately have that ability to volunteer and, and do all this meaningful and paid work. But with the basic income, then suddenly that opens up to so many more people, and it also kind of uh, solves this issue with say your unpaid interns kind of thing too, where mm -hmm. you actually are able to get people into these positions where they're interns or their apprentices or, or whatever and they can like get their foot in the door and learn something that's important to them um without that business having to like pay them a lot of money uh, you know in order to be there because they have to cover their basic needs so it just really opens up a lot of doors once people's basic needs are met universally yeah absolutely and i mean that is the goal of capitalism is to is to go up the ladder but if you're starting with nothing i mean i i keep going back to this like how fun would the game of monopoly be if you started with zero like that's really all we're saying yeah yeah in the in this in this argument for, for we've been going income. past go and not collecting 200 dollars for like 276 years and that needs to change um <laughs> but like going back to like the idea like there's kind of be it stemmed this cognitive dissonance i feel like between um like middle and upper middle class folks that you know they're they're doing okay financially they they realistically could survive without an extra thousand dollars a month they can take care of their kids and pay their mortgage and you know things are all fine and dandy on a on a stable cushy middle class income and it's kind of created this cognitive dissonance that like you know oh well why are we talking about giving away free money i don't need free money so they clearly don't need it. You just need to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and work harder. And it's kind of, you know, yeah, that given, only works given if them you have this boots. like <laughs> dismissive attitude of like, well, if you want more, you need to work harder. And the fact of the matter is, is like you were saying, productivity's up. We've been working harder. We're just not receiving any of the benefits of that. It's been going to, you know, higher corporate weight or higher corporate wages, higher CEO wages, higher profits for these companies. And it's just been this gradual increase for years. Um, but like, I'll use my mom as an example. Like, you know, she went, you know, she spent so many years married to my dad and my dad was in the military. So, you know, she didn't really have to work for anything. They had a cushy middle-class income and, you know, the only jobs she did work were just, you know, she didn't have to work there. It was, you know, little fast food places, a bagel shop here and there, a sandwich shop or whatever. And she would work these jobs a little while. And, you know, when I was a kid, you know, I'd call out of school and she could just up and quit her job if they decided they were going to fire her if she left to pick me up from school because she knew she didn't need that income. She had that freedom when she was married to my dad and had a cushy middle class income because, losing out on, you know, maybe 1500 bucks a month from her working while I was at school was, you know, not a big deal because my dad had an income. Mm -hmm. 
but it kind of drastically shifted when they split and then she had to work to survive. And, you know, the only experience she really had was, you know, working call centers type stuff and, you know, answering phones, secretary work. So that's what she does now. And it's, you know, I worry for her because that's one of those jobs that's going to go away with automation. And she's realizing now that like, you know, things aren't really the way that they were, you know, 40 years ago. And she's kind of waking up to the fact of like, you know, this isn't sustainable. This isn't, you know, going to take care of me until I die. This isn't going to give me a decent retirement. And she's really concerned because she's missed years and years and years of work experience. And now she's kind of, you know, stuck in this rut and a lot of the same, a lot of the same ruts that we are. Um, So I feel like a UBI could help people like her as well. And it's like, you know, I just, I worry about that. I really do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's also, um, it's such a good example too, uh, that, that is, is pretty common as far as how many, say women and my mom was one of them as well um i was and also because my dad was in the air force so i too was uh, in the military and where the um, air force brat and um my mom was able to be a stay-at-home mom and she did like some jobs here and there as far as like substitute teaching or she was also able to start up uh, be self-employed do some some businesses um at home and um it's like that's very common for a lot of that generation where the man was the breadwinner and the woman um, you know, was stay at home. And it's, it's gone away from that um, now, but you've got a lot of people entering retirement and that's where you see that, um, you know, if you're a woman and you reach a retirement age, your income is gonna be much lower for the rest of your life with social security because you weren't putting as much into the system because you weren't the one earning it the man was so there's a big differential um between social security incomes uh because of that and so a lot of women are um in harder circumstances more insecure circumstances because they're in a time where they're you know much lower amount of social security and that's really unfortunate and that absolutely can be much allayed by having this basic income uh, that's in addition to the social security. Yeah. So, so just to do um, a brief breakdown, UBI, the idea is we are going to give a set amount of money to every citizen every month, free and clear, no questions asked. The one on the table now is a thousand dollars a month as proposed by Andrew Yang and this it sounds too good to be true so maybe you could take a couple minutes to break down exactly how we pull this off because it sounds like a pipe dream to a lot of people sure okay so first of all um and before I get into Yang's plan uh I guess I'll just want to give a quick kind of uh, wide picture look at what basic income is because I think one of the reasons why people think it's so expensive is because they just do them at what I call the napkin math. And they just you know, say, oh, well, you multiply the number of people in the country and then you, mm. uh, you know, buy the amount that people receive. And suddenly you've got this ginormous number that's like three or four trillion dollars. And that just seems extremely expensive. And so just kind of like stop there. I think that's really expensive. And so that's the gross cost of basic income. And it's not how to calculate the cost. 
So it's it's it, to understand what the cost of basic income is, you need to understand that this is a it's a rare program. Uh, it's not I'm not it's not like anything else because everyone is receiving income and everyone is paying to receive it. So every single person is both it's a two way flow. And those at the bottom, let's say they're spending a uh, hundred dollars to receive a thousand dollars per month. And then at the very top, you've got people who are spending, you know, fifty thousand dollars per month for their thousand dollars per month. And so you have to actually calculate how much people are giving and how much people are getting back. Because if you are putting out money and getting back money, then that doesn't matter. So essentially everyone above the threshold or crossover point where you were putting in exactly what you're getting back. So you're no better off and no worse off. You're, 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 so you're spending $12,000 or $12,000. That person carries no cost. There is no cost for that because essentially the money is not moving. It's just there. And if you look at everyone above them, they don't, don't have any cost either because they're spending much more than they're getting back. So the money that's changing hands, if you look at the people or where the money's going, they're getting more money. Let's say they are spending $100 to get $1,000. You know, they are the ones who are receiving this money and that money is coming from the top. So the cost of basic income is the, the only the amount that flows from the top to the bottom and middle. You have to subtract all that out. And so if you look at the, the gross cost, you're looking at, say, over $3 trillion. If you look at the net cost of just that transfer flow, then you're looking at around a uh, trillion dollars depending on the, say, the, the rate and, you know, your funding choices, how you end up uh, raising the money and these kinds of things. And then if you subtract mm -hmm. out the, what no longer needs to exist, uh, because you've got, you know, welfare programs that may not make sense um, to keep uh, in addition to the cash grant, uh, especially if, you know, we're already saying they're, they're earning more, um, to, you know, no one qualify for it anyways. You know, if, if we're saying that you don't need anything, um, if you're earning more than a thousand dollars per month in employment income, then why would we say that we need anyone needs anything if they have a thousand dollars of base income? You know, so we can. There's a lot of money that we're that we're targeting, and that doesn't. We don't need to do that anymore. We can consolidate that into base income, and then you look at. Um, the effects after that as far as uh, growth effects and savings effects. And that's where things get really, uh, I think, pretty clear as to what the true cost of basic income is. So if you look at your uh, things like economic growth, we know that like um, there was just, just a really new recent analysis in Canada that looked at their child benefit program, which is, um, you know, basically a lot of families there are receiving over $1,000 per month thousand uh, dollars a month or more um, as a child assistance uh, cash benefit so they can spend it on anything and so a lot of families in Canada are getting this and uh, well what are the effects of that well every dollar they spend on the program uh, actually grows the GDP by two dollars so this is really good for the economy it expands the economy and so you're going to grow the amount of tax revenue that's being generated in total because you're going to have more people earning more money and so therefore more tax revenue. But then the savings is the big thing. 
Because if you look at the cost of child poverty in the U.S., and this is just child poverty, not poverty as a whole, not poverty for adults, and all that, just child poverty alone is over $1 trillion per year. So if we can dramatically reduce child poverty, then you're talking about a ton of savings. Uh, uh, an analysis that looked at uh, the multiplier effect of uh, the savings involved of reducing child poverty in the, in the U.S. is that every dollar we spent doing that uh, saved us $7 down the line. Because what happens is, let's say a child grows up in poverty, then um, they're more likely to say, um, end up in prison, and then we're spending like $60,000 per year on them um, in prison costs, and then they come out, and then they're not able to get a job uh, that they would have otherwise. So now they're like barely getting by. Let's say they have to work uh, like a minimum wage job, so now they're earning much less and therefore paying less in taxes uh, because if it wasn't for what we do for felons, um, then they could actually get like a 50K job or something, but we prevent them. So we're just like, we're losing, we're basically burning giant piles of money, not having a basic income. So when, when people talk about the cost of a basic income, I think it's really important to kind of flip that around and consider what are the costs of not having a basic income. And the costs of not having a basic income far exceed even the gross costs of having a basic income. We're just absolutely wasting money. Yeah. And th this is this is a different kind of positive feedback loop because the one we're in now, it's a positive feedback loop that just creates more suffering. It almost incentivizes suffering. And this idea that sounds just radically too good to be true to most ears is a positive feedback loop that just leads to a greater well-being for everyone. Yeah. And it only amplifies over time. It's funny when, when this, uh, I haven't written about this, uh, but there's kind of an analogy that I, I'd like to make where the, so when people say like, it's almost too good to be true. And you're just thinking about like, wow, basically seems to have all these positive effects. Why aren't there negative effects? Um, are you sure there aren't any negative effects? And you know this kind of thinking. And uh, the way that I that I, I try to explain it is that imagine just like if if there was like you had a magical ability to um, constrict everyone's airways partially uh, all over the world, and so like everybody on the planet, you just magically kind of slightly asphyxiate them so that they were getting you know 10, 20 percent or something less air or whatever. And like, well, what are the effects of that? Well, can you think of any positive effects that could come from that? Like you can imagine it, it would, for the most part, you would just have a lot of, of increases in, in bad effects. And, uh, you know, people would be you know, angrier and, and less healthy and, and all sorts of things would happen at, at higher rates and this kinds of thing. Um, so it's like, that's the way that kind of think of basic income where we're all partially constricted by you know, we're, by letting poverty exist. And if we just release those airways that everyone can breathe, then if everyone can breathe fully, we're going to have a healthier, better functioning across the board kind of society. And it's going to be kind of funny to them. It's like, oh, well, why didn't we do this before? It's like, we just thought it was normal that we were partially constricted. It doesn't make any sense to continue down that route. That's actually make sure that everyone can breathe. So I really like that. I really like that analogy of like the partial asphyxiation because it's a, a 
honestly, it just it lines up perfectly. It works. Um, see, with me, like coming of age in the middle of the economy being the way it is over the last, you know, 10, 15 years and stuff, it's like a lot of my generation specifically, like we're we're kind of collectively taking more of a, um, you know, like anti-government view a lot similar, very similar to the way that, you know, people did in the late 60s and the 70s of like, you know, we're looking at these problems and we're seeing like, oh, government's the cause of this. Government not doing anything is the cause of this. And it, it's partially true, but the the real inlying cause for me that I've noticed is like this enabling of companies to, you know, exploit and, you know, manage the government and kind of keep, you know, congressmen and senators on strings like puppets. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, this this kind of playing. And I feel like a basic income would kind of cut those strings a lot because you know, with people having more freedom in the job market and stuff, if a job is deemed, you know, unethical, like, you know, if Walmart and Amazon really are working their employees super hard and, you know, not giving them benefits and people are miserable there, you know, having a basic income, like, like you said, gives them the freedom to say no to that and pick a different job and still be able to somewhat survive in the meantime. Um, it, it opens a lot of doors for people. Um, but what I was getting to with that being said is, you know, this this corporatocracy that we have is damaging. Um, but my question for you relating to that is, does UBI scare corporations? And if so, what is to stop them from leaving the U.S.? Like if UBI is enacted nationwide and everybody's getting their thousand dollars a month or whatever dollar amount per month they decide on, um, what is to stop companies like Amazon and Apple from just jumping ship and moving to another country and not having to pay into that? Yeah, so I, I have a couple things there. First of all, um, it depends on the company. So there's there's definitely going to be companies that are hurt by basic income, and there's going to be companies who are much better off with basic income uh, because you're you're talking about basically flooding the the you know, consumer market with, with money for consumers. So people are going to be able to buy so much more stuff than, than they are now. And uh, that's going to be good for, for a lot of different companies out there as long as they're you know, focused on these kinds of goods that people want. And an example of a company that would not be better off with basic income that I expect to not be happy about it is your your money lender kind of company, your payday loans, your anyone who basically charges a lot of money for access to money, then they're going to be worse off in a in a system where people actually have free access to in an amount of money. And you actually saw this. This has been observed in experiments um, in the uh, India experiment with UBI. You actually had complaints from the money lenders because they were less able to, you know, just nobody wanted to take out loans from them anymore. Like, why would you take out a thousand percent interest loan uh, when you actually have a basic income now? You just don't need them anymore. So those companies are going to dry up and die, and that's exactly what I think they deserve. <laughs> so 
Yeah, yeah. The payday loan <laughs> industry. Be, I mean, I they, we'd all be okay with that. Yeah, that's the. I mean, I, I know so many people, so many people that are struggling. That you know, I they get into these freaking title yeah. loans on their cars, and mm-hmm. the interest rates are just ridiculous. And it's like they've done entire exposés showing, like, oh, you take out a five hundred dollar loan on your car at like. 40 some percent interest and then you make your monthly payment of like 83 or 120 dollars or whatever and that's all interest you're not even paying the principal balance of the loan and for people that are already struggling it's just purely exploitative like they already made the payday loan industry like they 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 locked down on that for the same thing and there was a whole thing like when I was living in Prescott, a lot of the Native American tribes were doing uh, loans with ridiculous interest rates because they didn't have to follow the rules of uh, the FTC and stuff because they were, you know, technically not, you know, U.S. loans. Um, but it kind of goes down to like, you know, when we look at capitalism as a whole, like capitalism means that our economy is fueled by money and the transfer of money for goods and services, exchange of money for goods and services. And the route that we've gone with this idea, this bullshit idea of trickle down economics of like, Oh, if we keep all the money at the top, it'll trickle down to those down below. And as we've seen, it does not work like at all. So, you know, and I, I, I constantly compare it to like, you know, we're constantly reinforcing the very tippy top of this pyramid and making it harder and stronger and, you know, worth more money. And we're pumping all of these resources and money into the tip of the pyramid while the bottom of it is getting washed away. But, you know, we fail to realize that the tip of the pyramid cannot stand if the base beneath it crumbles. And we you know, the analogy in there is that, you know, we cannot have a money-based economy if all these millionaires and billionaires have oodles and oodles of money sitting in bank accounts collecting interest and not spending any of it while everybody that works for them is suffering. Yeah. And being so, exploited in, in a system that incentivizes exploitation. That's So, you know, yeah. it, it reduces the exploitation and giving people the freedom to spend that money. It's going to help the businesses in the long run because... You know, the economy is yet again stagnating because all that money is just sitting and collecting interest and not being oh, moved absolutely. around. Absolutely. You know, we're, um, we're seeing So that. giving, you know, giving people that thousand dollars a month is going to, you know, get them to spend mm-hmm. it because, you know, giving somebody who makes a hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year, an extra thousand dollars a month, they're not going to spend it. They're not going to utilize that for anything. Yeah. They might donate it. They might, they might donate you know, it or invest something. it or. But for people that are in situations like ours, they're going to spend it. And that's what we want is we are a capitalist economy. We need spending. Spending is what keeps the wheels turning. Mm -hmm. In local economies as well, because right now it's going to like a handful. Oh, yeah. Like, am I going to buy some shit on Amazon? You're damn right I'm going to buy some shit on Amazon, but I'm also going to go down to Main Street and help support the businesses down there. Yeah, and we have a 70% economy. And so, you know, we require consumers uh, heavily based on services and you know it's just ridiculous to think that if businesses have more customers and those customers are spending more money that it's somehow going to hurt the businesses like even if you raise their taxes you know they're going to be net better off and also it's it's not only about the the money too but what you can do with it and so like one of my articles that I talk about the you know, get into trickle down. And um, 
when you get into this this like just how ridiculously unequal things are, like massive inequality that we have, then like so what if you're a, a billionaire and like let's say you can fly anywhere you want to, like great, like from that perspective you, you're pretty free as far as all the things you can do, but you're limited to what the technology is limited to. But if we actually decreased inequality and actually made sure that money circulated better and that consumers were able to buy and signal what they wanted and what you didn't want, and that you know you had this higher velocity of money circulating from both hands, you had a like a super supercharged economy, then we could actually build you know more technology and be more advanced. And so let's say 20 years ago. If we had not gone down this road, that we'd actually had basic income and quality had not gotten high, and the economy is able to be more productive, we could do we could be doing like flights to Mars right now already. And in which case you've got your your multi-millionaires who could fly to Mars. And it's like, well, so is that what's more important as a billionaire being able to fly around the Earth or as a millionaire being able to fly to Mars? Like we can all be better off if we actually. Make sure that the economy works for all of us instead of just like these few people. And um, but just to get to to answer your question to you about like being companies. Um, also, if, if we're talking about like a value-added tax, we're talking about a 10% value-added tax, and most likely about half of it will be paid by the companies because just on average, if you're looking at Europe, it just kind of works out that way. So it's kind of half paid by the companies, half paid by the consumer. So you're looking at like a five percent increase um, or decrease in their profits or you know total revenue as a company, and we already have these companies. They're already essentially paying for access to the European markets with much higher VATs. You know, you're they're totally fine with paying an extra twenty percent for stuff to access those markets. And we're even seeing stuff right now, like just imagine what's going on with China and the Hong Kong stuff, where you've got People just kowtowing to China. Uh, all these companies are just kind of like doing what China wants. Uh, why? Because of, it's a billion-person market. Right? They really want access to that market. So if a company decides to leave, it seems very doubtful because the economy would be working better. But assume, let's just say that they want to leave. We're say, okay, well then you can't access. There's no access to the markets unless you cover, pay the fee, pay the toll. You know, that's the the VAT. So you can. There's just no reason not to do that. And if they did do that, oh, they're definitely going to want access to the market, and they'll pay to get that access. Oh, absolutely, because their whole their whole thing. And we got to remember that the cost of production is rapidly decreasing with with the decrease in the need for human labor as everything's becoming automated. The supply is going way up. But the demand is going down, or it's it's becoming concentrated in you know in the wealthy. How how do you expect to move a higher supply with a lower demand? You create a bigger demand if you put this UBI floor in place. You are creating that economic dynamism. You are creating the demand for the products and services that that these businesses depend on. I mean that that's their bottom line. So. That's my response is they're absolutely going to take a be willing to take a little bit off the top to massively increase, you know, demand for their products and services because they're going up either way. They're, they'll take a little bit 
of a hit at the front end and they're just going to get it at the back end. And it, I mean, this is, it's just a no brainer. So, um, we, uh, we know the difference and we kind of understand how it works, but for those who don't, um, would you mind explaining the benefits and drawbacks of a VAT versus like, say Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax? Like how, how do they differ? And what are the important points that people should know about both of those policy proposals? Okay, so when it comes to wealth taxes, it's one of those things where, you know, I get it, but we, our wealth inequality is just massive, and we need to figure out a way to get at that wealth. And I will also say that uh, I have not read the book that I believe just came out today or yesterday or very recently by Mike Stockman um, as far as really getting into um, kind of like the nitty-gritty of his wealth tax proposal that has informed Warren and um, but just in general uh, track record wise looking at previous wealth taxes and you know it it gets really gets really tricky to define what wealth is and like how to measure it and, and when to measure it and you know how to go about like um you know getting people to pay that um and without avoiding it uh it just it doesn't have a good track record it's it's something that has started up in places and then they decided not to continue with it so it's like easier to have a workaround. Yeah, there's a loophole. All yeah, I mean, it's 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 another situation that's ripe for corruption, right? Because they're just yeah. going to move it overseas, and we we all know this. We you, you see all the you know the offshoring of a, of accounts, and I mean, this has just been a, a a part of our a part of our culture for ever now. Yeah. It seems. Um, did we lose audio? I think we lost audio on one, and you can keep going. Yeah, and so I also I don't want to kind of take the defeatist attitude of saying like, you know, we can't do that. Um, you know, there's not, the, maybe there's things that we haven't tried yet. Um, maybe there's like new twists and, and we can certainly uh, leverage the power of the government in a way to say crack down on these tax havens that people are doing. You know, it's not like, it's not like there's no way to avoid um, those tax havens. It's just kind of a choice on the part of the government that we're not really cracking down on. So there's things that we can do, and I'm not saying that a wealth tax is a bad idea, but it is difficult, and it, 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 is, a, it is a challenge, and it does have a, have a track record that it makes it less appealing um, as something that could actually work. But when it comes to value-added tax, it's kind of the opposite, where value-added taxes work all over the world. They're very popular, basically. The, the U.S. is the only OECD country without a VAT. And if you look at like a map of the world of all the countries with a VAT, there's only a few countries that don't have it. So it, it's just kind of, it, it's it's a tax that we've actually never done because it's so effective. It, it's something that Republicans have fought against for a long time. And they didn't fight against it because it would work. You know, they fought against it because they were worried that it would work so well that it would enable government to increase easier, that the Democrats could say, come up with new ideas and pay for it with like a higher VAT, and they couldn't stop that. So they kind of, we, they've avoided a VAT this whole time because of the ability for it to fund so many things. 
you know, it's it's so it's kind of the opposite. It's like where we where the VAT, whereas the wealth tax has like a history of of not working, a VAT tax is so popular that we haven't done it for that reason. So it's 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 going to work. It's something that makes sense, and it also the functioning of it is uh, self policing, which is it's kind of like a it's almost like like having like more of a distributed uh, IRS kind of system where um, so along the way, so a value added tax is a tax on every step of the transaction along the um, value added chain from say natural resource to finished product facing the consumer. And each step along the way, the seller will add a tax and pay that. This concludes part one. Uh, this was not intentional. The computer crashed, uh, and we had to reschedule for the second half. But it's great. It's fine. If you want to dig into the VAT more, um, go check out Scott's work. It's extremely comprehensive. In a nutshell, basically, it's every step of the production. A 10% tax is paid on the value that's added to the final product by that part. So say you're building a car and you have a, a factory that's building, um, let's go futuristic, the, f the factory that's making the, the lithium-ion batteries, okay, they, they pay 10% tax on the value that they're adding to the end product. The people who make the glass, the, who fabricate the glass for the vehicle, they're paying a 10% on the value that that adds to the final product, and it goes down the supply chain, so it's, just, it's distributed in, in a way where it doesn't hit anyone you know, any one particular entity that hard unless it's monopolized, for example, uh, to where, and so this is just, it's it's a great, actually, market strategy for improving uh, economic dy dynamism overall. This is an after th afterthought, afternote. Uh, I'm just in post-production. I've been working on this fucking episode for... <laughs> a hot minute it's great though i fucking love it uh so I, I guess yeah let's just take a couple minute break uh here and if you were gonna pause at some point uh this would be this is the intermission period here so this would be a good place to uh pause if you want to come back uh the second half the second half of this is fucking great though uh and you're gonna love it so scotch Oh, if you're just joining us, you probably, well, you wouldn't know this, but if you're a listener, uh, uh, you may have noticed that the theme music is completely different today, and uh, notes on that, announcements on that, it's uh, it's an exciting thing. So, <laughs> moving on, let's get back into it. Here is part two of my conversation with Scott Sandens. <laughs> So the main reason that I wanted to get you on uh, is actually because you're the perfect person to make the most important case uh, as, as far as I've seen, which is the why. The why question is is the most important. It, we, we see what and how, how feels kind of insurmountable, like it's some crazy pipe dream, but you know, a lot of people are starting to catch on to the idea that no, that this really is 
possible. But I feel like the most important thing that we can do is make the case for why. So why do you think the universal basic income is the right answer? Yeah, I think there are so many great reasons and, and very important reasons for uh, unconditional basic income. <laughs> okay, stop. You can hear the difference, right? Uh, we need a new production machine really bad, and this is so tacky. <laughs> But if you like the difference, become a friend of the show. Edward. And they all just kind of build off of each other. Uh, But I I think that it kind of all just goes down to your absolute basics uh, that even Thomas Paine was talking about. And and even when he wrote Agrarian Justice, he he distilled it down to, to one thing. And he basically said that uh, no man created the earth. And pretty much everything comes out of that. So that's an important element to understand. It's so fundamental because we created this civilization of ours. Uh, We created this private property system. And we created it by excluding people from their access to the earth so here we are the only species on earth that has to pay to live here so we're we're born on earth and we actually have to pay for our existences uh, because essentially our access to the earth has been removed and so thomas paine looked at this and he said that this system is as odious as it is unjust, that, that because of that, his plan was not a charity, but a right, that we have a right to our natural inheritance, which is the earth. Um, we would have all gained and continued to have access to it if we hadn't have built this private property system to exclude people. And so I think that really needs to be understood by by everyone when we're talking about anything, especially libertarians who would kind of go down to this core thing and they would say, oh, well, you know, um, we all have freedom and, and liberty naturally and that, say, taxation is is like somehow infringing upon that. But it's not base enough. It, it, we have to go down further, which is that the world existed and then we created private property to exclude people and now here we are so if you look at it that way if you look at something like say a the suggestion the policy proposal by your bernie sanders saying that okay this is a great idea instead of basic income let's do a a job guarantee where everyone is guaranteed the ability to work for money and so you can look at that and think, oh, well, how progressive that is, that this would allow people who don't have access to money to earn money, that it would reduce poverty and it would you know, effectively reduce inequality uh, because people would be working for their money. But the thing is, is that we are under that system, we are still withholding income from people in order to effectively make them work. And only upon work do we provide them with life-sustaining resources. So what I'm saying is that the fundamental thing is that 
we all must have access to the resources we need to exist. That's a fundamental human right. It's as if we if we say it's wrong to asphyxiate someone, say, you know, choke them to death, then it's also wrong to say, suck up all the oxygen in the world and then uh, say, okay, if you work for me, if you do what you want, what I want you to do, then I will give you some air back. <laughs> you know, like yeah. if it's if it's if it's wrong and considered murder to take air away, you cannot withhold that for any reason whatsoever. So this is an unconditional human right that we actually, as long as we created a private property system then we created the need for economic rights. And so people, they think, oh, it's not a human right to money. Well, no, it became a human right because we created this private property system. We created this world that exists um, where we exchange money for food, for clothing, for housing. And as long as we do that, we have to make sure that everyone has enough unconditionally to eat and to sleep indoors and to you know have clothing to these are absolute basic needs and everything goes from that and so all these other problems that we see uh, so many of these things exist because we are withholding income from people and that's really it's just such a fundamental thing it's it's a it's the human right to exist and that's just you know if if murder is wrong then so is a lack of basic income. Yeah. I keep pulling it back to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because it feels very, I mean, that's pretty much right on the money. And I love that that framing, uh, the way that you frame that as, as, as a fundamental human right as opposed to just, you know, like the the decades of pull yourself up by your bootstraps that we've been telling to people with no shoes. Uh, it's and, and and when you think about the problem that there really is only one idea on the table that can really solve the fundamental problem. I mean, obviously there's lots of other, you know, it's, it's not a panacea. I think we, that we should be very clear that like, Guys, it's it's a great start. <laughs> it is it's it's not the miracle pill, but it is the best uh, solution that we have. And I like that you mentioned the the jobs guarantee because people do think of that as progressive. I think of that as regressive. That to me that brings in up uh, images of like federal like work camps, you know, where we get bust in and out every day in jumpsuits. It's just like it's a, a federal jobs guarantee does not sound like a progressive policy. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it's 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 a good thing that you brought up uh, bootstraps too, because um, you know another way of, of looking at that is you know we just commonly say you'll oh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and you said that yeah, but you don't have boots. And the thing is, is in the existing system, we actually have taken all the shoes. You know, it's like we we are withholding right. boots from people actively, and then we're saying, look, if you do what we want then we'll give you the boots. And, but at the same time, we're gonna tell you to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. So it's just, it's just, um, just it's wrong upon wrong um, for, us, for us to do that. And um, yeah, yeah the, the other thing too is um, 
when it comes to you know when it comes to like a a, a job guarantee you know work work is important it's it's something that that we all as humans um you know we strive for purpose and uh it's interesting how hell you'll have job guarantee advocates using that argument and saying that look work is so important to people that we should make sure that everyone can can do it and at the same time they'll say but if we give them money then they won't do it <laughs> So it, you you can't have both those things be true. If if work is important and it is, then when you provide people with an income floor, then they will use that floor to pursue the work that they themselves feel are most important to them. And that work can be entirely unpaid even, which is an option that doesn't exist right now except for the rich. Like you have to be able to afford to do unpaid work. And with the UBI, that becomes an actual option. And uh, like you said too, this this isn't a panacea and, and no UBI advocate ever says that it's a panacea. It's only the people who don't like UBI that say that the Man. people who like UBI think it's a panacea. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, UBI will not solve everything, but what it will do is enable us to solve so many things that I think would remain unsolvable or much more difficult to solve without a basic income. It's the way I kind of picture it is like having like a, um, uh, a skeleton key to, to say all these locked doors. And so as soon as we, as soon as we have that key, then we can unlock these doors. Um, it doesn't mean that, that it just, you know, the doors automatically open, that there's no effort involved in finding those doors and, and, and opening them and walking through them, but it will enable us to actually unlock these things. And I think that's a big problem right now. It's just like climate change is, is its own example where I think that if we already had a UBI, I think that we've already would have progressed so much more and even probably possibly would have solved climate change and prevented it from happening what it is now if we had done you know UBI decades ago. Because I think as as long as people are are only thinking about how to survive to the end of the month, they're not thinking about perceive potentially the end of the world you know they're, that's just like yeah. uh these these problems are decades away that those don't matter what matters is just the problems right in front of us so if we're able to reduce and eliminate a lot of these problems right in front of us then that doesn't mean that that people go around thinking oh there's no problems now they're thinking long-term stuff they're thinking what is it that's important down the road what's um you know what's going to be um, what's my five-year plan? What's my 10-year plan? You know, what am I thinking about from 20 years from now and what should society be or what will it be? You know, it's, it's really, it opens up long-term thinking. And that's, uh, I think that's really one of the, one of the fundamental problems with, uh, like I would say human civilization as it exists now is, is, is so much of it so much of us, we're all just focused on this really short-term stuff and at the cost of all this long-term stuff. Yes, the short-term thinking is is one of the things that, as a huge science nerd myself, I'm like, I'm like Matt, this is a, a huge detour, but I'm a huge space exploration advocate. I've been a member of the Planetary mm. Society for several years, and I, I want us to be doing that, but it's almost impossible to get any, because the 
space exploration is a great example of some, it's like it takes a long time <laughs> it'll take yeah. you 10 years to build the spacecraft and it'll take 10 years to get to where it's going to go for a, a mission that may last you know an encounter that may last a couple hours and you have to be able to think in long-term, multi, multi-decadal, and multi-administration timescales, and it's you, you know we're so focused on the, all that this bullshit right in front of us. When nobody's really thinking long-term, and uh, again, you, you know, getting the the boot off and allowing people to do work that they value because that is that is a a thing that I don't hear enough people talking about within this. Uh, jobs guarantee argument. I was like, a well, job doing what? Okay, because how many people actually find that meaning and value in their work? If you did a survey, I would I would say half would be generous. You know, like these are most of the middle class, quote unquote. Uh, entry level type minimum wage jobs. These are not. <laughs> these are not like meaningful things. People can't wait to get up. You know, like it's church in the morning, where it's like some soaringly spiritual experience for them to flip burgers and and scrub toilets. So, you know, I and I just made this personal transition myself, and it, because I've been thinking a lot about value, and I I was a a full time uh, government employee. So I had all the all the benefits that came along with that. It was guaranteed. I had the, all the insurance, the health, the, the benefits, and the retirement, and you know all of that. But at the end of the day, you know it's it's backbreaking labor that wasn't allowing me to do this. This is what I value, and this is what uh, I want to put out into the cosmos. You know, I don't. I, I feel like that's more valuable than scrubbing toilets so i'm fortunately i'm in a position where like i have somewhere soft kind of to land you know but like having had ubi that would have been oh easy decision easy decision just walk away from that and do this because this is you know this is what it's all about it's value yeah and i think that having that option would actually make things valued in a in a more appropriate um way i i think that there's kind of a distortion in in markets right now that exists um, without a basic income, and you can see that, like the way that we talk about, you know, um, like you said about toilet cleaners, you know, like uh, it's it's a very common example when people think of of like a job that people don't want to do is uh, like cleaning toilets. Um, so at this, it's it's weird how you would think that if you were to like give a survey out to people um, as to like what's the job they, they least want to do, I think so many people would say that. And according to supply and demand, that means that that job should actually pay like the most. <laughs> it's like nobody wants to yeah. do it. So you should be able to earn like six figures doing that because you were doing something that no one else wants to do. And we all thank you for that. Uh, because that's like a great value that we don't have to do it now because you're doing it and that should pay well. So like that's the way that markets should it. work. <laughs> <laughs> and so these jobs that people love, it should be the opposite. You know, if you if you if you were doing something that like everybody would love to do, you really shouldn't be able to earn that much doing it because everyone is doing it and they're just doing it for the love of it. And right. uh, so that's the way that kind of these markets should work as well. As if you're if you're doing something that you absolutely love to do, you're you can effectively do it for free because it's just so meaningful. And again, that's the world that we that we want. We want people to do that. It's um 
I wrote something called the Monsters Inc. argument for for basic income, where uh, it gets into this. Where so in Monsters Inc. There's, um, you know, the the monsters world is is driven by it's it's fueled and powered by fear, and so like they have the harvest, like yeah. the screams from kids, in order to power their civilization, and so I compare like that's basically what we're what we're doing right now is is we have this civilization built on like the fear of poverty, and so if you if you because of that fear you have to do all these things that you wouldn't otherwise do, and so it, you can kind of imagine this where you know you're let's say someone's cooking your food and that that person you know that there's a good chance that that person cooking your food may only be doing it because they have no choice not to like if they if they don't do it then they would be afraid of of starving and being homeless so they're going to cook your food because they have no real other choice so you can imagine that that person basically has a gun to their head and they're cooking your food and so do you think that's like the best food that you can get is because someone's making it because they have no real choice not to like it'll be food but what kind of passion is in the food you know that the the best food is made by the people who like are just trying to meet the absolute best thing possible and that's the only thing that matters to them is like the experience of this amazing food so if you create a civilization where it's not driven by fear and like in monsters inc they discover that the uh, that the the joys and laughter of children are actually like ten times as as powerful as these uh, the screams and the fear, and so they kind of reorient their civilization around like you know the harvesting joy from kids by making them happy. So um, in our civilization, it's the same kind of thing. If you had a basic income, then you would enable people to actually pursue their um you know as as joseph campbell said follow their bliss they're they're trying to figure out what's important to them and then you're going to have people making food because that's important to them they're not doing it because they don't have any choice not to they're doing it because they love it and they're so therefore the you know this food's going to be better like all these things are going to be better the quality is going to go up uh for, for so many things because there's going to be more passion involved in this. There's going to be more self-intrinsic, you know, motivation involved in these things. And, um, you know, I think that's what we should be going for. I think we should be, you know, imagine knowing that everyone, whatever they're doing, they're doing it because they're choosing to do it. And so they're, maybe they're cleaning toilets and they're choosing it because it's a six-figure job or maybe they're, starting up some kind of startup to to do something to to help their communities or whatever uh because that they're passionate about that and it just like no one you you know that no one is doing their job because they they have to like that's just amazing and you could even think about it from the perspective of the say the boss too like imagine you have a bunch of workers and like right now how do you know that the people working for you like actually want to be there? <laughs> you know? Like you, you can imagine um, like it's one of those situations where you, you as a boss, you're something you walk away and then suddenly everyone like stops what they're doing and they don't care. They go back to like surfing the internet or whatever. They're just oh, whatever. I don't care about this job. They'll just, you know, just doing whatever I need to do to not get fired is what people can be doing. But then if you're a boss and you know, everyone has a basic income, then they're there because they're choosing to be there. And that would make me as an employer feel so much better too, to know that the people there are all choosing to be there and that no one's there because they don't really have a choice. And 
like just imagine how much better things would work, how much productivity would go up, um, you know, just how much happiness, how much more happiness there would be with people better suited and better fitted to whatever that they're they're doing. Yeah, it's such a it's such a radical idea and such a simple one at the same time. It's just like, and it's it's light years ahead to use a nerdy nerd nerd bits. <laughs> uh, what the fuck was it? Like? I was I wanted to shift into the current <laughs> state of shit. Well, uh, the welfare. Actually, before we sh- before we shift, I I, I want to go down the road that you just opened up. I, I want to go light years down that road because I I want I, okay. I want right. to I want to dis- discuss more kind of Star Trek stuff because I think I that love there's, it. Let's, um, let's go forward. The, all right. <laughs> Engage, right? <laughs> so, um, so okay. So you said earlier about exploration being important, and I think that's something that um, that Roddenberry really got right about um, kind of imagining this future where uh, it's maybe you know money doesn't exist as, as we know it, and you know everyone's basic needs are met, and everyone is essentially able to flourish. Um, you know, there's like no scarcity has been defeated. And so the question becomes, what do people do? What is what is it that, that drives people uh, beyond, you know, money? And uh, what is it that we would, we would pursue? And, and his answer in one word is exploration, I think. And so that's exploration of space. And so you could look at that as being like, a, you know, a literal thing as they were exploring space. But I think... Um, uh, you know, that's a metaphor as well, that, that we would be exploring, um, you know, our own lives, exploring our purposes. Um, we would be, you know, what is the unknown and uh, trying to, you know, ask questions and, and whatever it is we don't know, uh, exploring around those edges and, and expanding what we know. Um, and there's just, and that never ends. Like, we will never know everything uh, that there is to know. And, that is what uh, I think drives us uh, as humans. When once your basic needs are met, it's all about uh, spending time with each other and um, improving ourselves and um, learning and our curiosity and uh, you know just asking questions and, and just trying to to answer them. And so I, I just love that that Star Trek kind of captures that this exploration being the answer. Is kind of like the the top of Maslow's pyramid. Uh, and I think that that's what we would be doing. We would just be once if we install a, a basic income, and over time, especially if it rises, um, so that you're meeting more and more the basics, to that you're actually you know creating like a, a prosperous prosperity floor kind of situation. Then that's what we'd be free to do. Is just really spend our lives um, exploring what it means to be alive. And I think that's like a really exciting uh, you know, prospect uh, of the future. And I think that um, as, a, as another Star Trek reference to mention, uh, I, I wrote a piece called um, uh, Think Like a Martian. And it's imagining the, the world as it exists um, from the perspective of like a, an alien being. And um, mm-hmm. I, I think that... that uh, in Star Trek, according to the lore, 
We were contacted by, you know, the other civilizations. We first contact was made after we uh, re- attained warp speed, and so like it was a technological achievement that um, that kind of welcomed humanity uh, into you know the rest of the the galaxy. And I think that that's uh, I think potentially it could be something else. I think that. Uh, that instead of a, a technological achievement, um, you could look at it as potentially a sociological achievement. Like, um, you know, I, in exploring the galaxy at the Eve Enterprise, you would go from world to world and you would decide whether or not to make contact with them, you know, based on wherever they were at as a civilization. And I think that, um, that as long as we don't have uh, an unconventional based income, then I don't think we're advanced enough. <laughs> and I think it's a sociological kind of uh, thing to, to consider, because I think that once we have a basic income, then that's building a society based on trust, and the existing society is based on distrust. You are, we are not trusting each other. We are assuming that people will do all kinds of things if they have a, a, a access to resources. And so we have to like control the access to resources and kind of, you know, use that control to get people to do this or do that, or and then we kind of, um, you know, make decisions for them. Like, oh well, if we gave you cash, then that would be trusting you, and you're just going to use it on drugs. So we're going to give you uh, these food coupons instead that can only be used on food. Um, you know, it's 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 all distrust, and so if we if we switch from that distrust to trust, and we're actually basing our society on trust, and all of us are trusted by each other with this like minimum amount of trust, that's really what I think. Um, you know, the basic income is 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 because that's what money is 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 trust. It's this kind of um, uh, it's trust made real. Like you give a piece of paper to some. Um, to some business owner, to some merchant, and just giving them this piece of paper means that they actually will do something for you. They'll they'll give you yeah. like food, or they'll um, do some you know service for you. And why? anywhere around the world, a U.S. Right. dollar, it's it's universal. You can spend that anywhere in the world, and it's because we all agree on the common fiction to do a freaking. Yuval Harari plug again because I fucking love this guy. Uh, it's because it's it's it, these are fictions that this is what allowed. Oh my god, I've I've gone into this way too many times. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but we are going to get into our very punitive and distrustful and uh, awful, awful, <laughs> ugly feeling welfare state. But uh, when you were talking there for a minute, because I, I was just like absolutely sucked into everything you were saying and it was like it it felt very pale blue dot kind of it it was just carl sagan's birthday the other day and i was trying to think of something to to put together something to do for you know uh uh, some throwing around ideas and i'm like well okay so i there's a lot of audio out there that i could probably play with and have fun with so i'm gonna have to do something with pale blue dot and uh, i might mix i a lot of that into this. I might take a while to build this episode and make it super cinematic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, that would be uh, great. Yeah, this, I mean, 
God, I love Sagan. He was he's probably one of my biggest influencers in in my life as far as the the books and stuff that I've read. Yeah, I consider him one of my one of my teachers, really. But are you a socialist? Uh, I'm not sure what a socialist is, well, but I, I believe that the, but I believe that the government has a responsibility to care for the people. I'm not talking about dole. I'm talking about making people self-reliant. People able to take care of themselves. There are countries which are perfectly able to do that. The United States is an extremely rich country. It's perfectly able to do that. It chooses not to. It chooses to have homeless people. It chooses. It's, we are 19 from the world in infant mortality. 18 other countries save the lives of their babies better than we. How come? They just spend more money on it. They care about their babies more than we care about ours. I think it's a disgrace. And uh, this country has vast wealth. You just look at what something like uh, Star Wars, the money spent on Star Wars, they already spent $20 billion on it. If these guys are permitted to go ahead, they will spend a trillion dollars on Star Wars. Think of what that money could be used for to educate, to help, to bring people up to a sense of, of uh, self-confidence, to improve not just the happiness of people in America, but their economic standing, to improve the competitiveness of the United States compared to other countries. We are using money for the wrong stuff. Oh, 100%. 100%. I fucking love it, man. And it... Uh, Cassini breaks my heart, man. I'm getting a little bit of an echo back. I can hear myself. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Uh, the fact that the fact that he wasn't there to see Cassini was like existentially like it, it was soul crushing. I'm like, <laughs> I really wish you could have seen that. That was my, that was my like favorite mission. I think yeah. hands down my, my personal, I, th- I think that he would have just fucking been floored. And now with what we're seeing from Juno, like these crazy high definition uh, images of the like upper, you like, you could see multiple layers like down into the atmosphere. It's fucking trip, man. Total oh yeah, tangent, well, he, but yeah. even stuff like you know gravity waves and just everything we've learned since his death. Like he would just you know he would love all of it. Oh my god, yeah, we need him so bad. But uh, <laughs> yeah, you know that his his voice is timeless and it's out there. So uh, I'm I'm gonna see what I can do about you know properly getting my. I'm I'm sure a lot of that's public domain or or whatnot. But yeah, and I'm. I'm going to have to do something special with that. I've been meaning to do it for a while. I might put a whole mm-hmm. long cinematic thing together uh, for a separate thing to celebrate Pale Blue Death because I, uh, I'm a huge nerd like that. Anyway, where the hell are we? <laughs> we got totally tangented by fucking well, space shit, man, because we're space nerds and I love it. <laughs> I guess uh, let's let's go from where we are now to what you had asked previously before we went off on a tangent, which was, you know, we have a society built on trist- distrust and a uh, manifestation yeah. of that are all these programs built on distrust. And so, you know, we could go into the existing, you know, welfare state and its conditionality and uh, you know the problems with that because it is so distrusting yeah we don't have to go we don't have to do too deep of a dive um because i i really want to just kind of introduce these ideas into people's heads uh because you've really done like way 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 more than we could even begin to cover here so i i would rather send people to you for deep dives i i got into i listened to one that was oh where is it 
it was really good it was one of the uh one of the more recent ones which i'm gonna have to link to in the show notes because it was fucking fantastic uh, um yeah these are the right notes but that's i don't have it on there but yeah, just like broad broad strokes. Like we yeah. we all know that that it's it's a fucked up thing that you make you jump through hoops and and all that. And it is it is depressing, but yeah, so I I guess just kind of um like a, a wide picture view of the problems with with conditionality. Um I think that people need to understand and I think a lot of people don't understand because I didn't understand either uh, when I first got into this. Uh, I think we just we base our opinions on the welfare state as it exists uh, based mostly on assumptions. Is that we unless we've actually gone through all these programs ourselves, um, we don't know how they work. And and even if we have gone through them, it's not necessarily the same for someone else in a different you know state, especially. Um, so these, you know, it's, it's not like they treat everybody equally. Um, oh. But I think the a main, uh, like a main understanding that people need to have is that we actually have people dying in poverty, um, you know, in the U.S. It, it, we can kind of kid ourselves that that's not happening, but it is. Uh, it, and, uh, you know, we don't, it's not like these, it's not like toe tags show up on people's bodies in the morgue and it says poverty written on it. You know, it's not like. That, that that we're d- determining that the cause of death is poverty. It's but we are doing it. We're we're naming it all kinds of other things. You know, like uh, it, people can uh, die because they were you know sleeping outside and you know they they got too cold, um, so you know they they died that way. Or or maybe they um, got diabetes from like a diet um, based on like you know decades of of poverty or or insecurity um maybe you can even get you know higher rates of heart disease and in cancer and i mean all sorts of these outcomes happen um as a result of people not having a sufficient amount of money and also not having the security and stability of a of a regular amount of money, you know. So it's not only about the money, but it's about knowing that it's always going to be there. That that creates this uh, this um, you know less far less stress through this feeling of security and stability, and that means a lot more um, you know healthier outcomes. And so all these these people that are getting sick or even dying, um, we would avoid a lot of that if we had a basic income. And so therefore, without a basic income, we are effectively, um, you know, sentencing these people to continue, you know, dying in the in the various ways. And so, you know, that is a massive failure of our existing system. And it will always, it will always work that way uh, as long as it's conditional. You know, right now there's 13 million people um, living under the poverty line in the U.S. that are entirely disconnected from uh, the federal safety net. They're getting absolutely zero. And there's different reasons why that's the case. You know, maybe it's because they don't want it because then that would make them that kind of person. And so then they feel, you know, that's the stigma. And so people avoid that stigma. And so they don't even apply. Or maybe they applied, uh, but then they messed up in the application. They did it the wrong way. Um, maybe they don't know that they're 
that they actually qualify for a program so then they don't apply for it that way or maybe they did apply and they got it but then let's say they were like late uh, or they didn't make it to like a couple locations they were supposed to go to during a certain time period and so they like lost it like there's all sorts of reasons why people don't get uh, any kind of safety net uh, you know they they fall right through it it's not um, it's not there for them it's it's for a few people and then the people that it that it catches this net catches it actually serves to trap them in the net uh, because that's yes. how nets work uh, so that it doesn't really like help propel them out. It's not a trampoline. It's not a floor. It's just this this net that kind of makes it even more difficult to get out of once you're in it. So th- those are like serious problems that I that I want people to understand um, because I I really I hate when when people say oh you know it's not worth doing a basic income unless we do basic income and the way we do things right now. You know, and it's like that's a it's a cop out because they they're either don't understand what's going on with the existing safety net and they're just assuming that it works or they kind of like they know, but they don't want it to like be known. Um, you know, they don't want to admit to it because then it kind of feels like like you're like like you're guilty of something that if you're if you admit that you should get rid of something for something else, then there's something wrong with it um, and they don't want to admit that. So like, that's a problem, but I just, I, 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 there's just some just crazy stories of, of, you know, what has happened. And I'll just share one cause it's just one of the more impactful ones. Um, it's first of all, I recommend everyone read tyranny of kindness. It's a, you know, it'll really give you a deep look into, um, the problems with the existing system. And um, just I one of these examples. I found my notes. That's the one I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to go you off that. I have tyranny and kindness right here among my many notes. And that's, I listened to the, uh, the last episode, I think, that I, I caught over at uh, your show was, was your coverage of that. And it got really, really moving. That's going to go in the show notes. So check that out, guys. Great. Yeah. So um, I'll just share one um, one story of that that people can listen to in that, that podcast or you know read it for themselves in the book. But it was the story where a woman had three kids and she was um, she had housing assistance. So like she was in the system being helped, you know, quote unquote. And um, that's all she was getting. Like you were supposed to get uh, cash assistance in addition to the housing assistance. But in reality, basically, the the landlord was able to take that for themselves because they did something called like a two party check. And so, um, you know, the landlord could sign it and, and the other person had to sign it and then the landlord just get all the money. And so then they were you know, left with nothing else. And so there was no separate cash assistance um, for this family. And so what she needed to be able to do was to go, go um, buy a blanket or something. Um, have some kind of, you know, even candles or, or something because there was no utilities. This is like a slumlord situation. And so there was like no heating and it was in the middle of winter. And so, um, you know, she goes to sleep with the three kids all, all bundled up in bed and um, wakes up next to two kids because one of them died from hypothermia while they were sleeping. And uh, like, that's the kind of thing that we can entirely avoid if we make sure that, you know, always, someone's always able to buy something like blankets or heating or, or they're able to leave a slumlord situation 
you know, you have to have that that freedom of choice and that uh, access to resources to prevent that kind of thing from happening. And I think that people are just turning their heads and just saying, you know, oh, that doesn't happen. But these things do happen. Um, you know, people, it's just tragedies are happening all the time. Um, but we're just kind of, you know, ignoring them. And it's, that's, I, I just kind of wanted people to open up their eyes to, to the, the reality of the situation. And um, it, something else in tyranny and kindness, I, I, I think that might be my next uh, podcast episode too, is there's a, there's a section later on in the book that kind of goes into the entire like um, system of uh, uh, philanthropy and, you know, nonprofits who are trying to, you know, fill the gaps um, and how like that kind of system is um, wrong in itself. Like it's, it's the, we, uh, it's crazy how like we prevent people from having money to buy food. So then like these food uh, goes unbought like in stores that would have been bought. And then that food, um, which a lot of it would go to garbages uh, because it's you know no longer edible because it's past expiration dates or whatever goes to um various you know, like like a like a major food bank organization uh to figure out where it goes next and then like uh companies are able to get like a write-off on their taxes um from essentially shipping off their garbage so instead of actually paying uh to actually have this stuff dumped they dump it into these you know, nonprofits and then the nonprofits have to figure out like which uh, can actually go to people and in, in which they have to throw away themselves. And it's just like this whole gigantic mess of a system that exists only because people that we don't trust people enough to just buy their own food. And then right. as a result of that is, is like the rich get more tax credits <laughs> the corporations get even more assistance, uh, you know, to get out of it, and it, like, none of it needs to exist that way. It's just this whole mess of things, and so that's what I, I want to get. You know, I want to just to get more into that, and you know, understanding how things are, and um, you know, really doing system wide changes. So, basic income is certainly part of that. Uh, but also, you know, these these kind of second order and third order things like if we have a basic income, then, you know, do we look at uh, like phil philanthropical write offs differently? Do we, you know, change the way that we uh, offer like tax subsidies and tax expenditures for all these various things? Because those things are built to incentivize like the rich to help uh, the poor and you know the middle classes um instead of just helping the poor middle class directly through basic income so there's like so many other things we can fix as a result of this yeah and that's one thing that uh, another uh, unfair attack that andrew gets is that he wants to get rid of these these programs no he wants he wants to hit put something better way better on the table that just makes many of these things obsolete just like by default, you know, which is great. And this is why a lot of uh, conservatives and libertarians are on board with this plan because they're like, well, the welfare state's a fucking nightmare. I don't want my tax dollars going to that anymore. Let's, 
you know, re rehaul that. So, I mean, there's, there's arguments to be made there. Certainly. Uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you are very, very, very busy, but we have to talk about Andrew Yang because you're, you're, you're pretty, <laughs> uh, pretty connected from what I understand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, Hey, I, I was, I just noticed that Andrew Yang, um, he, he just passed uh, a million followers on Twitter. Oh, sweet. I, yeah. I've had like the, the, nice. the live kind of, um, you know, feed going on Social Blade, and I see that uh, it surpassed that. So, yeah, congrats to Andrew on passing a million. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Uh... How how are you guys connected? Because it's he's using uh, your plan, right? Basically, am I getting that right? That you wrote this this piece uh, five six years ago that largely inspired Andrew's work. Is, is that yeah, I, I I wouldn't say that uh, he's using my my plan, but he certainly um, was inspired and informed, um, you know, by my plan. So um, yeah, there's certainly elements from it. Um, that that made it into to his and he certainly he's read um, a lot of my stuff and um, and that's I think that's also why he's able to to talk so well uh, about basic income um, as well because he's he's read this stuff you know he's not just somebody who um, you know decided that the numbers showed that basic income was something to run on you know <laughs> like he the the, the the it goes back to he decided that basic income was really important just like i feel basic income was really important and he read my stuff and he is thinking well what can i do uh to help you know bring this into fruition and um uh, the he that calculation that he made in his head he decided that that the most effective thing that he could do would be to run for president and really to you know get it out there and make it main, mainstream as um you know part of that candidacy so yeah we met back in uh uh i think it was 2016 um and uh you know we met multiple times became friends and um, in 2017, you know, it was, um, it was um, you know, like leading up to his uh, announcement and, uh, you know, he told me about it in advance and, you know, figuring out what we can do. And, um, uh, you know, I helped, uh, you know, I read his, I read his book and uh, helped get that out there to, to my followers. So I know a lot of people who were following me uh, found Andrew, um, through my, uh, you know, Twitter feed and, and stuff. And, um, yeah, it's just been amazing to, to see him, uh, grow since then. You know, I was, it's funny. I was just, um, looking at my old copy. And so like the, the copy I have of his book, uh, is like, it's a pre-release copy and, so um, that's it's like it's like uh, it's not even I don't even know what kind of changes were made since like the one that I that I read, and uh, you know there's like a, a paper in it that's like from the publisher and stuff and you know um, a note about this and I was just noticing that that was you know, November of 2017 so it, I think it's been two years since like uh, I, I 
got that book and and uh, started reading it and started getting it out, getting his name out there. And uh, it's kind of crazy to think that it's been this has been a two year process, uh, you know, over that since he was already planning it before that. And um, I mean, most people uh, who are Yang Gang, uh, I mean, the the big moment, of course, was Joe Rogan appearance, and right. that. That only happened back in February of this year, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, he's he's been running for president uh, for a lot longer than that, and so it's just been amazing to see, um, you know, just again, he just passed a million followers, and you know, back in February, I'd have to look at and see what he was then, but I think his followers were like, I don't know, like twenty thousand or or um, you know, somewhere around there, maybe in in. February and so yeah it's just been massive growth and um, you know just more and more people getting in and, and they're just so excited about it too and so it's not just like people deciding that oh Andrew Yang is their candidate for president um, and it's like people thinking Andrew Yang is my candidate for president and I am not changing I you know I'm not, this is not like a maybe thing. I, I think that the Andrew Yang needs to be president. It's extremely important and I'm going to do everything I can to make that happen. And where, whereas if you look at say Elizabeth Warren, um, based on these kind of different surveys, uh, her like soft support is like 70%. So 70% of Elizabeth Warren's followers are like, yeah, I, I think I'm voting for yeah. Warren. But yeah. I could vote for somebody else, <laughs> and that's exactly the the reverse. Where for Yang is is when when you look at Yang, um, most everyone who is voting for Yang like is really strongly for Yang, super so, passionate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's been a it's great a, thing to see too. It I am have been blown away by seeing this message start to spread around the world. Because uh, yeah. we got Yang gangs in, uh, I think there, we got one in London. We have uh, one in Australia. I, I'm getting somebody on from, uh, actually a couple different people in Australia on from the Aussies for Yang to like see what the hell, <laughs> like what? That's how radically transformative this idea is, is that it's it's spreading around the world and we're seeing, I, I, I think, you know, uh, a rise in things like basic income marches and... Um, this just this idea of getting traction globally, which I think is we need to we need to uh, point that out more. <laughs> I I think Yang Yang that like even, even when we get this guy in office because we we're gonna get him in office, but the the fight doesn't stop here, kids. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. I, I've said it I've said it before. We're not putting Andrew in a golden throne to to throw rain money down on the peasants. That's not how we want this to work. <laughs> we're we're gonna keep fighting. Until every industrialized nation with a VAT uses it to pay a freedom dividend to their citizens. Yeah, uh, yeah. And th so this is a positive feedback loop, too. And it's a loop that I've seen in action since I got into this. And so when I first started getting into basic income, that was 2013. And that was at the tail end of the, um, the uh, Europe-wide initiative to try to get basic income there. And so that was a signature initiative. Not a lot of people actually know about this in the US. Um, hmm. It happened you know, years ago. Uh, but they, they had a very strong signature drive. And so they were gathering signatures in 
uh, EU nation after EU nation, you know, all of them had to reach a certain signature level. And if they did, then they could have brought that and they could have, you know, done like a Europe wide uh, kind of basic income um, thing and based on like all these, you know, signatures and everyone deciding to do that. So uh, part of that process was a really strong uh, social media influencing campaign where it was all about, you know, basically it was like the first uh, memification of basic income and trying to get people to learn about basic income through various images and, and short videos and stuff and, um, you know, all over Europe. And so that, if you look at like the history of basic income, um, that was like a big spike with so many people in Europe learning about basic income for the first time. And so then that helped more people in the U.S. and elsewhere around the world also hear about it. And then Switzerland um, followed with their signature um, initiative, their referendum, and they voted on it in 2016. And of course, like getting the signatures created like a bunch of news and actually voting on it was a bunch of news. And like so, so many articles and stuff were written about Switzerland. And so then that caused a whole bunch of other people around the world to learn about basic income for the first time. And, and I remember um, there were people from Switzerland who came to the U.S. And that's right. First met them because they were interested in getting basic income more on the radar in the U.S. because if they got people in the U.S. talking about basic income, then that would make it more likely that the Swiss would vote yes on the referendum because the Swiss care a lot about what the U.S. thinks. <laughs> so you can see this this feedback loop where we were seeing that now again. So Yang is becoming more and more of a big deal. People elsewhere in the world are hearing about basic income for the first time through him, and then they're wanting that in their countries. And of course, enough countries do that and more happens, then that goes back to the US. And, you know, if this kind of feedback loop can actually amplify itself enough, then, you know, that would actually help Yang get elected. So that was one part that was um, kind of a big thing about the, the first like global basic income march was because that was great for Yang in the U.S. to see and to be able to point to all these other locations around the world who are talking about basic income. Yeah, I love it, man. I love it. And I, I cannot wait to see where this is going to go and start talking to some of these people uh, in uh, elsewheres in the country. I actually just found out uh, the other day, Travis pangburn is apparently yang gang which i was like whoa really uh and uh uh he might come on the show we're, we're talking about it but <laughs> great uh before i let you go i um or before we wrap it up brother i did have a uh audience question well it's it's more it's a it's a paragraph <laughs> that, that's <laughs> audience paragraph as okay. a question yes but uh i i like you know pulling from uh listeners and, and getting support and stuff so uh this is from brendan carpenter he's uh in i think he's the some regional tucson director person yang gang person mm -hmm. uh he says um I think the most interesting angle that I personally haven't seen him cover as much is his rebuttal to the automation crisis deniers that say job creation uh, and increase in general quality of life has always exceeded the job losses uh, and that Bain and McKenzie studies are wrong. 
in their just verdicts on a complex issue from biased, quote, technologist and consultants. It's a bit wordy. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so uh, I guess just a quick coverage of um, of kind of lightning round. in explanation <laughs> of like why this is actually uh, automation is real and the problem is real and um, um, you know those who say otherwise are are wrong like maybe just a quick uh, coverage of that so I guess uh, I would I would start with the um, the slowing down of productivity growth because that's where a lot of people will just point to that um, and just say oh look See, automation doesn't exist because if it did exist, then we would be seeing an increase in productivity. And because we're seeing like a slowing down of productivity, sure, it's still rising, but it's slowing. And therefore, automation is not uh, real. It's not a threat. It's not any kind of problem. That's like the, I think the main, uh, uh, the main one. Okay. So the answer to that is there, there's a, a few parts to it. So first... If you look at the the decades of labor market transformation, um, you know since the since the eighties, uh, you'll see that decade after decade, the um, uh, high skilled jobs are going down, and low skilled jobs are going up, and um, most of this loss is actually in the in the, the middle, and there's a, there's a real like skills polarization going on where we're creating more and more of these high these low skill jobs over time and so just recently we started to create um more high skill jobs um i mean a little bit more but for the most part it's like this real polarization with um the low rising over and over again okay so the interesting thing about that is not only is a manifestation of that um say lower wages or, or stagnant wages at least uh, you know people will lose their their 50k manufacturing job and they'll have to find a new job because they don't really have any other choice not to and then they'll find a new 20k job and also um, so that's where like a lot of this that's a big problem of automation right there is that the result is in this stagnant and lower wages instead of unemployment. Um, that's an issue in its own. But the other problem about this is so now you're working, uh, let's say, on average, 50 hours and you were working 40 hours. Uh, because you have to like you're either really worried about losing your job uh, or you're like you have to work overtime essentially or you have two jobs or whatever so like time is going up so the way we measure productivity is of course um, you were dividing by time so if your hours are going up and it has been we've actually been increasing our hours since the 80s uh, in the US instead of decreasing the hours like we had for decades before that then that's going to mean a slowing of productivity because we're actually, you know, doing more time um, for the same amount or less stuff. So that's that's a problem. Um, another thing is that these these jobs that we automated were really productive. Like, so if you're building a car, 
then that's like a really productive job. Each hour of your of your labor is worth like say thousands of dollars or something, you know, because it's a high, oh, yeah. high, you know, it's a lot of value there. And then, so you, you lose that job to a robot and now you get a job doing some like low skill service thing and the productivity there is really low. Like you are, aren't adding that much value. You know, it's just like a, oh, you're getting paid, uh, say $10 an hour right now because it's a minimum wage job and that's what the minimum wage is in your state. And you're actually creating like, you know, $20 per hour worth of value or something like that. Um, so it's really low productivity jobs that we've been creating and then forcing people into. And so if you can see right there that that's going to slow productivity as well, because we're, we're shifting from like, um, a, a society that had like a larger percentage of high productivity stuff into a society with a higher percentage of like lower productivity stuff. And so th that should help people understand why we're seeing this slowing. And then, of course, you throw in uh, David Graeber's bullshit jobs too. And you can imagine, yes. like how how productive how productive is it to do a job that no one needs to do? <laughs> it doesn't even need to exist, but we're doing it for whatever reason. You know, we're doing it because someone above us needs to feel that they have to be higher by having someone below them, and they need to someone to to push buttons, or maybe like a job exists because of all these problems that that wouldn't need to exist. So uh, they're just like um, what David Graeber was, would call a duct taper, you know, and it's, there's, if you look at like the bullshit jobs and I highly recommend people read that book too. Um, but if you consider just all the work that doesn't need to exist, that we're creating and doing, and we can entirely eliminate that, then of course, you know, we're preventing productivity through, through that. And why are we doing that? Because we don't have a basic income. <laughs> so if we just make sure that we decouple income from work so that people have this unconditional amount and can decide for themselves what work should exist, what work should be important, then we can massively increase productivity because not only are we doing stuff that's more interesting, but we're not doing the things that we don't need to do. We're doing the things better that we do, that we do want to do. And... Uh, just like this, the, you know, what is what is the purpose of all this productivity, anyways? Like, you know, we're even we're measuring GDP uh, and dividing it, you know, by by hours work basically to decide productivity. And so again, is GDP the measure of of like our societal like success? Like, of course not. There's there's so many other measures to use. So it's even about escaping the way that we look at and define productivity right now. And make sure that um, that we even essentially incentivize automation. And so that's one of the problems preventing us right now from automating away this stuff is that the the price of human labor is is far too low. It's being kept artificially cheap by the lack of basic income. Uh, if we had a basic income and people were able to demand the money that they believe that they should get for these various jobs, then you know, let's say if you don't do a job, if you refuse to do something uh, for uh, $10 an hour, but you would do it for $20 an hour, and a machine costs $15 an hour to 
to install, then great. Now we've suddenly incentivized all these uh, machines to actually do this work instead, freeing us up from this stuff. And uh, one measure I've read is that half of all the work that we do right now could be automated with existing technology. So here we are worried about, you know, 20 years down the road and losing half of our jobs. But like we could look at it as right now, if we purposely wanted to, we could automate away half of our jobs on purpose. And then we could also get rid of all these bullshit jobs that don't need to exist at all. We could focus instead on working less. We could say, hey, if we all need to work, um, you know, let's say a quarter as much, then we could actually have you know a much shorter work week it could be normal to be like a 10-hour work week or something and we would have all of our basics um that we're already doing right now so that's what i want to reorient around and i think that that the question that says oh automation doesn't exist let's not worry about it we should reframe that even to oh let's actually automate as way as much as we can on purpose. Like this is not a bad thing. We shouldn't be arguing over right. whether automation exists or not. We should make it exist and do it as much as possible because it's a great thing. And let's just make sure it benefits everyone. I love it, man. I think that's a great place to call it. <laughs> uh, Scott Santens, you are a fucking superstar, man. Thanks for, uh, coming on the show let's get all your uh, closing thoughts final wisdom plugs all that important stuff anything that you want to drop before we wrap it up here i know we've gone over an hour here and that that was not planned but you're <laughs> a fascinating fascinating conversationalist and we've not begun to scratch the surface of of your work and i highly encourage all the listeners out there to go uh, especially the uh, tyranny of kindness, and you mentioned uh, the other book. There, I, I have it. It's in the notes. I'm, I'm on, <laughs> it. I'm on top of it. <laughs> All right, so, yeah, yes, uh, uh, yeah. So you can people can follow me at Scott Santons on Twitter, and uh, my blog is scottsantons.com. I've got an FAQ there that people can you know read of uh, a bunch of stuff about basic income. Get really in depth on it. And um, uh, you can follow me. I have a news flash at scottsantons.news. So you can subscribe to that and then you can get alerts as to uh, podcast appearances like this that have been in, uh, new articles that I write, uh, that kind of thing. Sweet. All right. Well, I will make sure to put uh, all the relevant whatnots uh, in the show notes. And if I miss anything, I will add it to our humans tab. We have. Uh, where all of the hosts and guests and friends, everybody kind of just appears in, in one place on the uh, on our website, humans, uh, and there will be all the appropriate links there. Scott, thanks again so much for your time, man. This is uh, awesome. Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks. It was it was great talking with you, and uh, I'm glad we were able to talk so much about Star Trek too. That's always fun. <laughs> I know we could do a whole thing about space shit, and uh, I, I actually have I, I have news for you that but I'll, we'll have to share that off air. <laughs> All right, great. All right, well, take care, man. This is awesome. Thanks, you too. This concludes season one of our Humanity First series. Thank you so much to Scott for coming on the show. 
Our website is mindwave.media. You can follow us on Twitter at Mindwave Podcast. We've created something new since this episode was recorded, and that is Mindwave Universe. The tab that I referred to as humans is now the universe tab that's linked to our Facebook group, which you should absolutely join. We also have a new weekly live stream every Sunday, live at 5, Arizona Mountain Time, which is fantastic, and you should come join us for that. Thank you again to the friends of the show who are supporting it and making it possible. You may have noticed that we don't run ads on this show, and that's why. Uh, because fuck ads. So if you enjoyed this and you want to be a part of the Mindwave universe, please join us. Please become a friend of the show. Please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Take care, guys. Ad Astra. Stargazer. Copyright 2019.